Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Dr. Matthew Walker was a talented surgeon who dedicated himself to community. He used his talent and knowledge to bring excellent health care to the people in North Nashville. But his impact reached beyond Nashville and beyond medicine as well. He trained aspiring African-American doctors from all corners of the country and was instrumental in the civil rights movement. Later this hour, we'll learn more about the medical center that bears his name and hear about what the man was like from his descendants. But first, about 24 hours ago, Governor Bill Lee signed a bill that caps the size of metropolitan legislative bodies at 20 members. In practice, that means Nashville. As of now, Nashville Metro Council has 40 members. 35 of those represent a district and five at-large members serve countywide. The Metro government has vowed to challenge the new law in court. It is the latest step of what has been a growing battle between the state legislature and the city. Eli Modica has been covering the story for the Nashville scene, and he joins us now. Eli, thanks for being here, and welcome back to This is Nashville. Thanks, Khalil. So, you know, Governor Lee signed this bill with a quickness. What's your sense of how fast this all played out? It's been—I've been hearing about it for six months at least. Um, It's something that state lawmakers started—well, I don't know when they started talking about it, but it started to um, trickle through— to journalists around August, September last year um, after the RNC, there was a sense that a lot of state lawmakers were annoyed or um, angry with some of the decisions that Metro was making or wasn't making, specifically getting the approving or, or cooperating with getting the RNC, the Republican National Convention here in 2024. Mm-hmm. Also, some, you know, how, how slow the Titan Stadium negotiations have been going. They didn't like that. And, and several other, there's, there's also just sort of seems like an interpersonal or kind of an animus that exists between largely conservative Republican state legislatures, or the, the largely Republican state legislature and the Metro Nashville Davidson County Council. So. so, you know, we've got this, the third largest city council in the country at 40 members. Give us a little background on this council and why it's so unique. In the late 50s, um, the, well, the, there was a county government, Davidson County government, and then there was a, a Metro Nashville government. There was a failed vote where they said, you know, we should consolidate this. I think that was 57 or 58. Um, and uh, Beverly Briley was the first mayor of that consolidated um, city and county government, and that that... There was another vote, a successful vote in 62, I think, 62, 63. And it's it's unique in that um, that single body presides over both the county, the Hall of Davidson County, and uh, Metro Nashville. And it's consolidated in the sense that, you know, unlike Shelby County, which has a county board, a county commission, and, and the city council, we just have one. Mm-hmm. It's... Um, Harold, Representative Harold Love spoke a little bit about his father, who was a charter member of that body back in the 60s, about how, you know, there were lots of discussions at the time, how to how to ensure fair representation among cities' different racial demographics, among the city's different geographic demographics, and how that, that 40-member body kind of formed out of a lot of conversations 
and a lot of negotiations, ultimately for the benefit of running a more efficient, more um, streamlined, consolidated body rather than having two operating side by side as there was, you know, before 1962. So this cut to 20 members, it's going to deeply affect not only who's represented, but how they're represented. Talk to me about how this will impact the council members themselves and their ability to do their jobs. This is the huge conversation right now that everyone's trying to figure out. Um, once that state law was signed yesterday, it, it technically starts a 30-day clock for new districts to be um, presented and, and voted on by Metro Council. 30 days. There's a, there's a planner, Gregory Claxton, who we're all thinking about right now. Hmm. Um, it's, his, it's his job to figure out what those new districts would look like, and he has a, a small team of planners, and he's, he's in Metro, Metro's planning department. It's kind of, the, the joke is that he's, you know, locked in a room somewhere with a bunch of coffee and snacks, and he has to come up with probably one of the most important decisions um, in the past decade or few decades mm-hmm. in Nashville city politics, how to draw 20 districts from 35, whether to draw 20, whether to draw 15 and have five, you know, be countywide at large seats as there are now, whether to draw 17 and three at large, like there's mm-hmm. possibly come up with multiple scenarios that the council could vote on. The process of redistricting um, after the census in 2020, 2021, Planning spent six months getting community input, trying to figure out where to draw these lines. When it com- comes to local government, it's like every street, every neighborhood, uh, all of those little decisions and those those lines. Like we we see it play out in gerrymandering with in congressional districts, but in city, it's even more down to that local level. Um, whether to draw constitu- or whether to draw incumbents in the same district, so that they you know two incumbents might be running against each other now with these new rules. All, how to figure all that out, that's kind of what what is on the planning department right now, what, what Gregory Claxton's trying to figure out. You said something about incumbents potentially running against each other. You know, later this year, we have elections coming up for many of the positions in city government. How would this new law, outside of these districts, how would it complicate this process? There's a lot of uncertainty around this right now. Based on the law, there would have to be um, additional elections in 2024. Hmm. So... One of the big questions is if we have it, it would complicate those elections because it would be, you know, what are, are we going to not have them and extend members terms for another year? If that's the case, some members have already indicated they would resign. They were preparing to leave. Um, so would that create some special elections this summer, then additional elections next year? Is that our is that even legal? Because there's lots of different, uh, these rules are already laid out and the government's city and state governments have already been functioning based on rules for decades. The state deciding to change them up and throw a wrench into that whole process is, I guess, one of the biggest things that a lot of state lawmakers like State Senator Jeff Yarbrough, um, st- State Rep Bob Freeman, a lot of them are bringing up on the floor this week, you know, saying you're, th- you're throwing a huge um, complicating factor that is potentially potentially illegal, potentially unconstitutional, violates the charter, violates the Tennessee Constitution, all these different scenarios. Everyone's trying to parse them right now to figure Mm. out elections this summer, special elections, extend terms. Is that even legal? Additional set of elections next year. This is this is the mess that that Nashville Davidson County is in right now. It sounds like quite a mess. And another group to consider are people who may be interested in running for city council who may have already done some investment and started their campaigns and suddenly their district will no longer exist. You know, so, you know, Metro Council has this legally binding charter. It's dating back to 1962 and it determines how 
Metro Council and the city operates. You know, this law is coming into conflict with it. In what areas does it really butt heads against this? I think one of the big things is that, that Jeff Yarbrough brought up is that it, it violates the Tennessee state constitution, firstly, hmm. it, which which indicates four-year terms for local government representatives. There's also an exception, you know, for for Nashville in that same constitution that it now is going to come into to violation with. Um, and for current members, for people who have already started campaigns, maybe already started spending money for campaigns, they could potentially have grounds to then sue maybe Metro, maybe the state to sue on their own behalf of saying like, you know, I was, I was running a campaign and now that campaign, the money that I spent, the time I put into it, the volunteers, it's, now it's meaningless because of this this intervention that took place. So that that's the, this is Wally Dietz, the Metro legal director. That challenge is expected to come probably on Monday, early next week. These are some of the things that I expect to see him outlining in that in that legal challenge against the state next week. You know, this is a real crazy legal and procedural quagmire, huh? Yeah, it is. I'm glad that I'm not the one trying to figure it out. <laughs> I'm with you right there. You know. People argue, and you mentioned you mentioned this at the top, that this is another move by the state in this ongoing battle with Nashville, and it can seem like like there's pretty petty reasons for all of this. What did the people you talked to for your story? What did they have to say about that tension? There were some. There are a couple different camps. There's business owners, and um, a lot of them we might categorize as more conservative business owners who say, you know, we've had issues with the way that metros run. Maybe we've had issues with council members um, kind of poking holes in the functioning of the city government and saying things would be a lot, very abstractly, things would be a lot easier if there were only 12 or 15 members and they had staff and they had more money. And those are all moves that Metro is actually preparing to make to reported on yesterday, increasing salaries, increasing staff. So there's that there's sort of people who who don't like the way some of the decisions that Metro has made, challenging the Titans, the new Titans Stadium. State legis- legislators also don't like to challenge the Titans Stadium, not cooperating with bringing the RNC here, which it's not even clear if that would have been possible. But um, those those state lawmakers who maybe are are along more partisan lines, that's another camp who. Just they like partying in Nashville. They like going out to dinner here. They like entertaining and mm. Broadway or downtown. But um, there's real partisanship there, where they see Nashville as um, a you know as a, the blue island in the red mm. state, and they wanna be a little petty. It seems like, and and a lot of their defenses don't really go much further than saying Nashville doesn't run a, a good government. Nashville, you know. Leader Lamberth on Monday said Nashville's gouging it. He didn't say gouging, but he's Nashville's increasing its property taxes, and that's irresponsible, and it's not being economically responsible. So we have to intervene as legislators on behalf of the Tennesseans that live in Davidson County. You have those Tennesseans representatives, the Nashville representatives, saying, this is ours to figure out. We've had votes. People want to keep this large council. You're coming in from other parts of the state, supposedly on our behalf. Um, why? Oh, they have the same questions. Why? Why? Now you made reference to the legal challenge. Is there anything you're going to be keeping your eye on and watching for there? 
me and we've had a, a couple reporters at, and uh, Nicole Williams, columnist at the scene, trying to figure out this exact question. So Stephen Elliott and I, he's at the Nashville Post. We were talking yesterday, basically thinking like, if you're a candidate and you've already pulled papers, you've already started spending money, like who sues who on what grounds? So I'm, I'm interested to see whether there are suits brought against Metro for, from a candidate's point of view, changing the, the playing field, changing the goalposts. And there are suits from Davidson County against Tennessee saying, you're, you know, you're forcing us on a short timeline to basically refigure our entire city government. Eli Modica is a staff writer for the Nashville scene. You can find the link to his story on this episode's web post at thisisnashville.org. Eli, thanks for being on the show and thanks for your reporting explaining oh, yeah, this crazy stuff. There's going to be plenty more soon, I'm sure. Well, we'll see you soon. Thanks, Clue. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn more about the Matthew Walker Comprehensive Health Center and how it puts the public in public health. Join the conversation and tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. At the corner of Jefferson and 14th in North Nashville stands an institution that is dedicated to serving the health needs of the community. The Matthew Walker Comprehensive Health Center really does live up to its name. It offers medical care in pediatrics, family and internal medicine, dental care, services for women, and most importantly, health education and everyone is welcome regardless of insurance status the center is a part of the vision created by dr matthew walker who dedicated his life to public health my next guests know all about it as they are continuing the legacy of service set by dr walker katina beard is the ceo of the matthew walker center she is joined by dr robin mays the center's assistant dental director and evelyn wilson the quality improvement manager over the patient-centered approach. Thanks to you all for being here today, and welcome to This is Nashville. Thank, Thank you. you. Glad to be here. Really appreciate it. So, you know, when I think about this medical center, the word that stands out to me is comprehensive. Mm-hmm. Taking a total approach to healthcare. You know, Evelyn, talk to me about the model and why it's at the center of the work you all do. Oh, so the PCMH stands for Patient-Centered Model, um, Patient-Centered Medical Home. And... It is the model we use that places the patient in the center of their care. So what that means, you have we have the patient and then they have an entire care team that coordinates their care to produce the best health goal for them. How important is it to provide that wraparound care to people who are underinsured, underinsured or maybe uninsured? It's very important in the way that it reduces and somewhat eliminates the social determinants of health um, that is prevalent in our community, especially the 37208 um, zip code. Um, Why is that? That is because we connect, not we don't just treat them for their, their health, 
but we connect them to resources. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, behavior, you have behavioral health. You have, um, if they need food, we have a nutritionist there. Um, we have pharmacy. We have all the elements around them to help them be successful in their health goals. Now, Dr. Mays, you help run the dental program at the center. Can you tell us more about those services? So I am very happy to say that we have a wonderful dental program at Matthew Walker, and we truly are a comprehensive dental unit, um, being a piece of Matthew Walker. So if you come in and you need a cleaning, teeth removed, a denture, whatever you need, we're able to do. And that is a benefit for Matthew Walker because there aren't a lot of comprehensive health centers, number one in Nashville in general, but those that offer dental services that are truly comprehensive. So we get referrals from some of our partners in the community for services that they just don't provide to their patients. Mm. So we provide anything from crown and bridge work, dentures, cleanings, extractions, anything you can really think of, we're able to provide for those patients, and especially those patients that typically would not be interested in dental care, those who couldn't afford dental care. And then with the whole 10 care expansion, we're able to get to those patients as well. You know, you mentioned people who might, may not be interested in dental care. And, you know, anyone can get leery when mm-hmm. having to go to the dentist. How do you calm people's anxieties? Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the true things about Matthew Walker is it's a family. And that is not only in the case of the employees, but it's also with our patients. So we are not only looking to serve their clinical needs, but we want to become true partners and create a relationship with our patient. And I think when you're working to create a relationship with your patient, then you're able to build trust. You're able to close those doors or knock down those barriers of anxiety and fear that they have, which makes them open to receiving that treatment and to trust the care that they're being given. Does any patient come to mind who you got to see get more comfortable? I actually have a patient, and I'm not going to name her name because she will kill me, because she was actually one of our board members, believe it or not. And she had just a fear of the dentist. She came in. She was tense. She was uptight. Um, It took her probably two years, actually, to come in to see me. She said, Dr. Mays, I'm going to come. Dr. Mays, I'm going to come. So she finally came when maybe... You know, she had to at that point, mm-hmm. um, but we were able to provide wonderful care for her. Um, we create positive experiences. We like to turn a little music on, you know, per the patient's request to calm them down. And we've been able to get her in a good place. Not that she was in really a bad dental place to begin with, but we were just able to ease her mind and her fears of some of the phobia she had around going to a dentist. Um, she's actually no longer living in Nashville. And she feels comfortable and confident about finding a new dentist where she's at now. And so just being able to create those positive experiences is part of what makes being a dentist worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Now, Katina, I want to talk to you about the center as a whole. It serves people who, in other cases, may not have access to Mm -hmm. quality medical care. How does the Walker Center impact the well-being for the community? Sure. So, yes, our focus is absolutely to target those in our community that would not normally have access to care because they don't have an insurance plan. And so our structure is built so that people can afford services. Our whole goal and purpose is to be accessible and affordable. And so we have a sliding fee 
plan that individuals can sign up for and it's based on their household income and the number of family members in their home. We also have staff that will help uninsured individuals try to find insurance to try to help ease that burden of cost of health care because it's it's expensive even for those of us with a private plan health care can get pretty expensive very mm-hmm. expensive you know part of dr walker's mission was to serve people who lack consistent access to yeah. medical care talk to me about the people the center serves in the community sure so we are here to serve everyone right but we we target those who don't have any insurance uh, who may not have access to health care. Our patients have been coming to us for generations. Our pediatrician can tell you that she saw a particular patient as a baby, and now they're bringing their babies. Mm-hmm. And not because they don't have anywhere else to go, not because they are uninsured, but because they trust in the services that we provide. And so our patients come to us because they want to be healthy. They want to be healthier. Some won't come to us because they are looking for a provider that resembles them. We are in that climate now where people are looking for providers that are African-American or maybe non-English speaking or younger or even older. And so our patients, our staff represent and reflect our patient demographics. And so we are serving uh, the entire uh, generation of a family. We can serve the baby and the mom and the grandparents mm-hmm. uh, all at the same time. And so I think that that's also what's unique about our model, right? Is that the whole family can come in and be seen at the same time. And so we actually have created our national clinic to be in that manner. So a mom, a new mom that's having a baby can come in. She's sitting right next to the clinic that serves the babies. And so the pediatrician goes next door to talk to her so that when she has the baby, she's already comfortable and has a pediatrician in mind that she can bring the baby back to. If the grandma is in the family or in the home, everybody's coming uh, to our center at the same time. And so we're serving families. Hit me to the process. Like if I have to come in for stitches, are you signing me up for other medical screenings or are you just <laughs> asking me questions and then we get to that? No, no. We're, we are giving you screenings because we are concerned about your entire well-being. And so we are going to assess your mental health. We're going to assess your weight. We're going to assess your tobacco use. And it's not to be intrusive. But we know how critical your time is. And so it's we don't want to keep bringing you back for one thing after the next. And so we want to be able to give you a complete picture of your health when you're there. So then we can determine a plan. In dental, they call it a treatment plan. In uh, medical, they call it a care plan. And so what is it that we want to strive for together? And so, again, as Evelyn discussed, the patient is in the middle of the discussion. And so what are your health goals that we can help you reach? Mm-hmm. And so if you come to us for a one-off you know, a stitch or, you know, I got a a sinus infection or whatever. We want to become your medical home at that time. And so let's engage in a discussion that helps you get healthier. Now, Evelyn, how do people respond when they're offered more help? (laughs) They are are honestly, they're um, very appreciative. Um, They appreciate the one-stop shop, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, The fact that they may be coming in for, say, um, an A1C check. But we will go ahead and not just do an A1C check. We will also do an eye exam. We will also check, of course, in checking their vitals. We'll make sure that they um, they have an, an acceptable or a no, normal blood pressure reading. We also ask questions to see if we need to get them into our chronic care, care management program. That is um, a program that does that checks back with them. We don't just treat them. 
but we are on this journey with them. Mm. So we are in constant contact. Hey, how did your medic? How are you doing with your medication? How are you doing with the exercise goals that we we agreed to? Um, we are checking back. It's it, and they they like that personal mm-hmm. treatment. They like the fact that we 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 care. You know, we are with you on this journey, and we want. We don't just want to treat you, but we want to you to be healthier overall and improve your quality of life. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kali Colonna. We're talking this hour about the Matthew Walker Comprehensive Health Center with Katina Beard, Dr. Robin Mays, and Evelyn Wilson. Tweet us your comments at This Is Nashville. You know, it doesn't only treat people, but the, the center offers health education. Evelyn, tell me about some of the classes that you all hold there. So we have what we call, um, it's called Dial Down Diabetes, but what it does is for our patients um, and even people in the community that have a, what we call a blood, a um, A1C that's out of range, that's not normal. We have classes on how to um, check your, your um, take your insulin, how to eat healthier, mm. how to exercise, what to expect when you feel a certain way, when you need to contact your provider or your care coordinator. So we have those classes. We have hypertensive uh, management classes as well. Um, am I leading, missing something? Salt. Salt. These adults living triumphantly, which is our group for older adults that are 55 years old and older. Now, I am reaching 55, so I asked them to just go ahead and move that number up just a tinge. Okay. But SALT is our program that keeps our older adults connected in the community. And so I think during the pandemic, we all understood the importance of our social connectedness. And SALT does that. It encourages our older adults to stay active, to stay socially connected. And so in December, we, through funding, took them Christmas shopping. We just had a painting Mm. uh, event with them this week and so it really uh, is our our program that just really embraces our older adults in the community. You know, reproductive health and and education has really been in the spotlight since the Dobbs decision last summer. Evelyn, has has the community shown an increased interest in learning more about reproductive health since that time? Has the community shown interest? I cannot, I can say this. I have not, um, yes, they have shown an interest. We, my department is more responsible for reaching out mm-hmm. to get, make sure that, you know, we're getting patients in to get them connected to, um, you know, women's health services. So, you know, that is, it has definitely been a discussion. Excellent. Well, you know, Dr. Mays, this public work in health, It's a lot of dedication and effort that you all are offering, you know. Have you ever seen it impact a colleague in a profound way? Absolutely. I mean, I can remember eight years ago interviewing with uh, Miss Katina Beer, Miss (laughs) Katina Beer. And uh, one of the things that we talked about, which kind of led me to decide it was a good fit, was um, having a servant heart. Mm. And that you really, truly have to desire to want to do the work that we do um, to work in public health and to serve the patients that we serve to to be happy and for it to be successful. Um, I have the uh, privilege of running a residency program at the clinic and I get 
new dentists who come in and they know what they want to do. You know, this is a generation where they're like, I know what I want to do. I'm entitled to to this thing. Hmm. And I had a, a young doctor come in. Um, it was actually our first year of the program. And he was said he was going to have this boutique practice. He had never really worked in community health, didn't really know what he the ride he was in for. And by the time he finished the program, not only did he not want to do what he thought he wanted to do, but he found his home in community health. Mm -hmm. Um, He enjoyed the patients and the demographic that we were working with. Um, He learned to have confidence in the skill set that was needed to be able to treat the patients that we see each and every day. And he now works at a community health center in Tampa, Florida. All right. Um, so, you know, we, we truly are committed to what we do. We don't change the minds or hearts of everyone because, you know, there are a million things you can do um, no matter what your career choice is. But we do want people to understand that there is a need to have providers that treat the patients that we see and that we want providers who actually want to treat the mm-hmm. patients that mm-hmm. we see. Um, because it, there is a difference. There is a difference. Um, but one thing that we really pride ourselves on is that we don't want to be the provider that you have to come to. We want to be the mm-hmm. provider that you choose mm-hmm. to come to. Mm-hmm. And while we do see underserved and uninsured patients, we see everybody. So mm-hmm. if you have private insurance, come to Matthew Walker. If you don't have insurance, come to Matthew Walker. But we really want to be the provider of choice and not the provider of have to. Mm-hmm. You know, Katina, the center trains, what, more than 200 medical professionals per year, I understand? Clinical professionals over the year, yes. Pharmacy, dental, medical, nursing, absolutely. What difference does that make in Nashville and beyond the city? Yeah, so I think to Dr. Mays' point, right, we're training people in a model that is not necessarily shown them in the academic setting. And so most people think about going to work in a hospital or an emergency department or a private practice. And so being able to understand that the community health model uh, exists in all 50 states and it is very uh, important to the fabric of that community. And so for us to be able to continue to train students in that way, it continues to extend the legacy of Dr. Walker. That was his foundation of teaching and making sure that people were prepared to go in to serve their communities. And so At the time of Dr. Walker's death, he had been um, acknowledged for training 50 percent of the African-Americans that were physicians at that time. And so hearing Dr. Mays' story about our first cohort of dental residents that are working in community health centers today, it it just makes my heart smile to know Mm -hmm. that we are continuing to teach and educate and um, I don't know, encourage mm-hmm. individuals to continue this work in a community health center, maybe not at Matthew Walker, but at a community health center near them to extend the quality of care. So all of our physicians, all of our dentists, all of our staff are highly trained. They are certified in their skill. They have years of experience. And so it is not though our staff are in any other way different than what you would receive in a private practice. And so to know that we are sending people, preparing servants to go out into the fields to serve other communities is inspiring to me. I want to thank my guests for coming on the show to talk about the great work done at the Matthew Walker Comprehensive Health Center in North Nashville. CEO Katina Beard, Dr. Robin Mays, and Program Director Evelyn Wilson. Again, thanks you all so much for being here, and thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn more about the groundbreaking life of Dr. Matthew Walker from people who knew him well 
and one of his descendants. Have you heard about Dr. Walker? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We're talking this hour about the legacy of Dr. Matthew Walker. Before the break, we were talking about the health center he started and the impact it's made on the lives of Nashvillians for more than 50 years. The Louisiana-born surgeon was educated and trained at Meharry Medical College. He then went on to be a leader in the city, emphasizing public health and training African-American physicians here and around the country. He was a man of many talents and interests, my next guests saw this firsthand as they grew up knowing Dr. Walker. I'd like to introduce Mary Ellen Forrester Hollins and her brother, Bill Forrester. Thank you both for being here today. Good afternoon. Thank you. Wonderful. So, you know, I understand, you know, that your father, Dr. Bill Forrester, was best friends with Dr. Walker. Joseph Forrester. Joseph Forrester. Pardon me. That's right. Bill, tell me, what do you remember about their friendship? Um, they were very, very close uh, and and they shared a lot in terms of service to all people, uh, regardless. And they conducted the, themselves in ways that would uh, bring other gentlemen in. So it wasn't just my father, Joe Forrester, and Dr. Matthew Walker. There were several other physicians, and for example, and they traveled. Uh, to different communities. Uh, they would set up uh, an operation on a weekend in uh, Fayetteville, Tennessee. They were constantly giving back, not only to Nashville, but uh, there was a clinic uh, that was run by Dr. Donaldson in Fayetteville. They would go there. They would go to Clarksville, Tennessee. And these were people that, for folks that could not afford medical care or coming into the major cities. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the doctor there was a Dr. Pannell, and they would open up a clinic, and my father was eye, nose, and throat surgeon. Dr. Walker was uh, a, a surgeon, a thoracic surgeon, internist, and they would, they would see patients and help them out you know, for a short period of time. Uh, and they established mutual relationships in Lebanon, Tennessee, with a Dr. Glover. And so if you can understand, on certain weekends, yeah, they would take their time away from their families uh, to go to these other areas. Uh, there was also a, a, a spot in Springfield. I just can't remember the name of it. But uh, they gave back to the community. In great ways, it seems like. Great ways. Now, Mary Ellen, I understand that you all spent a lot of time, a bit of time, with Dr. Walker's family when you were growing up. What do you remember about those times? Well, first of all, uh, Dr. Walker and my father were family-oriented. And anywhere the adults went, the children were taken uh, I can remember spending uh, so many uh, events at the Walker Farm. It was on uh, Silver Spring. Um, I, 
uh, Sulphur Creek Road. And uh, Papa would say, okay, we're going on out with Maddie. He called him Maddie. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just like one big family. And, of course, uh, Papa and Dr. Walker always said, the children are served first, and then the adults would be served. Mm-hmm. But um, it, 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 there were some exciting times. Now, when we had... Uh, we had firecrackers at our house. Christmas uh, events were spent at our house. That was in the winter time, because we would spend most of the time outside on the on the Walker's farm. Okay, in the summertime, that must have been really beautiful. Yes. From what you remember, I like both of you to answer. What kind of man was Doctor Walker, Mary Ellen? Well, he was he was very serious and. Um, uh, was always helping helping people. I can remember when <clears throat> somebody in my family um, got her finger mashed in the door, and my father was not at home, and my my sister was was bleeding. The tip of her finger was mashed in the door, and Mama says, "Call Matthew." They lived on Macmillan Street. And within five minutes, Dr. Walker was there, picked up Mama and my sister. Hmm. And my sister must have been about three, four. And um, the word got out. He just comes in with this little girl in his arms. I need the operating room. I've got to put this little tip back on her finger. When Papa got the news, it was, oh, Dr. Forrester's daughter's arm has been cut off. <laughs> and Dr. Walker had to sew it back on. It was just all sorts of tales. That's something else now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, things go down the wire pretty quickly. <laughs> right, right. Bill, I understand Dr. Walker, he was an avid outdoorsman. Extremely, who, who extremely. Loved, he loved hunting. You ever go out on a hunting oh, expedition? Look, yes, yes. They were part, uh, just about every day, they were Omega, fraterni- Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity Brothers. Uh, they were in the uh, in the medical auxiliaries, the sportsman's club, the Apollo club. They were always in the same clubs. And he hunted uh, with his two sons, uh, Matthew and Daniel, uh, along with my brother, Joe, and myself. And, and uh, it, was, it was an activity. Mm. Dr. Walker was not only a giving person, but he was an instructional person. He, he would communicate, and he wanted to help. And it's interesting, as far as the hunting went, when we hunted, we hunted on properties, you know, back then in the 50s and 60s. If, when you hunted, uh, you had to have permission. And the black farmers in the neighboring communities uh, allowed us to hunt, and one of the conditions was kind of like a barter, you know, can we hunt your property and we and and I'll see to it that Joe Forrester does your eyes, ears and th- nose and throat. <laughs> OK. And I'll do the internal stuff and we'll do the surgeries every it, it was a cooperative, mm-hmm. but it was it was a joint cooperative. And uh, yes, he was very much so uh, a fisherman, a hunter I and mean, just everything, everything. 
My next guest is a descendant of Dr. Walker who followed in his professional footsteps. Dr. Candace Coney is Dr. Walker's granddaughter, and she joins us now from Tampa. Dr. Coney, thanks for being here and welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Really an honor to have you. How does it feel to have people honoring the legacy of your granddad? It feels it feels wonderful. Um, I've enjoyed listening and um, to the conversation t- today, and of course beyond that, just the work that um, is being led by Katina Beard and the work that's being done by Dr. Mays and others. The staff—they're all remarkable, and um, so it's very appreciated. And of course, hearing uh, from Mary Ellen and Bill, who I've known all my life. Uh, it, it, it is wonderful just to, to hear their perspective, their very personal perspective. Well, tell me, what, what's one of your favorite memories about your granddad? One of my favorite memories would probably be him spending time with us and, and his, his love of the outdoors and sharing that with us. So he once gave us an anatomy lesson on a raccoon that he shot. Hmm. So he... Um, he slit open the belly. He he showed us where the bullets were. He showed us where, you know, the organs were. And I was about 10 years old. And then he told me just to dig in there and take out the intestines. And I remember he said, just stretch it out. And, I, you know, I was really shocked to see how much of the uh, uh, the intestines, how large they were mm-hmm. inside of the animal. Did, did his work... You know, expeditions like that, doing, you know, little anatomy lesson on a raccoon and the, the work that he did on a daily. Did that really inspire you to become a doctor yourself? Absolutely. Um, I've, I've told some friends a story about I, re- I remember as maybe I was five years old going to the hospital with him. And I was just so surprised uh, because he couldn't make it around the corner it, because he was um, met by so many people who wanted to speak with him and there were jokes flying, you know, just back and forth. And, you know, he had so much, um, he he had just, he was mobbed by people and they were very loving. And uh, it was just uh, a lot to see when you, you know, you're so small and, and seeing your grandfather um, welcomed in this way. You know, part of... No, let me ask you this. Did did he know that you were hoping of becoming a doctor yourself? I, I don't recall ever saying anything like that to him at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, part of the beauty of having grandparents is that they offer us wisdom. I wonder, what words of wisdom did he share with you? Well, I just very, very simple words to me. For example, I remember there was a time when my mother would paint pictures of him and she was actually this time she was making a a clay model of him to, I think, to be displayed at the health center. And he liked to watch football. And so I had this idea. I was maybe eight. And I said, let me give grandpa this mirror so he can look at the mirror and see the football game because he had to hold still for my mother to make this model. And he said to me after I did that, he goes, Candy, you're a smart little girl. And just the way he said it and he you know, looked at me and he just made me feel important in that moment. So um, I say, he, and he, he was like that with all the grandchildren. Um, give a little shout out. Branford Giddings is the oldest, Randy Giddings, 
and Matthew Walker III, Monica Nicole. Um, he he was very loving to all of us. Mm-hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. We're talking this hour about the life and legacy of Dr. Matthew Walker with his granddaughter, Dr. Candace Coney, and longtime friends, Bill Forrester and Mary Ellen Forrester Hollins. Now, you know, Dr. Walker made a lot of trips to Mound Bayou, Mississippi, a small rural black settlement followed by formerly enslaved people. He he saw a definite need there. And in 1974, he was interviewed by his friend and colleague, Dr. L.J. Bernard, about why he made those trips. Let's listen. And I was going to Mount Bayou. We had three objectives, or four objectives. One was that we wanted to give uh, a better health care delivery to the people in the area. Second, I wanted a place for my more advanced men in surgery. Third, we wanted to uh, teach them about community health preventive medicine and that type of thing. And we also wanted to offer a place for the black doctors in the area to learn how to go in a hospital. Because at that time, black doctors had no hospital to go into. And the poor little fellows who finished medicine 10, 20 years previously didn't know how to write on a chart because it just wasn't permitted. And so that offered a, a place for them to go. And we'd hold uh, conferences and seminars and that, that type of thing for all the surgeons and doctors in the area. Mary Ellen, when you when you hear it in his own words, what comes to your mind? Well, <clears throat> he believed that if we had a continuous checkup, then, and I guess that was his dream with the uh, Matthew Walker uh, Center, that there would be no need for long-term care and going to the hospital and, and just waiting so long for that service. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he was a big part of the civil rights movement here. Can you tell us a little bit what he did for the movement? Well, of course, uh, his son, uh, Matthew, his son, Matthew, and uh, Maxine participated with the sit-ins. Uh, Dr. and Mrs. Walker, along with my mother and father and some other um residents in Nashville uh, were responsible for finding people to post the bond for the for the sit-ins when they were arrested. I think they were in jail for about for about two weeks at a time and um, during that time um, it was lots of phone calls to people all over Nashville. Our numbers people did a wonderful job mm-hmm. putting up money. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, hey, Papa would say, Joe, uh, Matthew, we got to hit everybody. And they were behind the scenes working. You know, Bill, I, I heard about like another group of patients that he helped in a unique way. And it made him a so-called ghost surgeon. Yes. Can you tell yes. us some more about what a ghost surgeon is and what uh, Dr. Walker did in that regard? Uh, that was a practice here in Nashville where uh, folks like Dr. Walker and my father, Papa, for example, was ambidextrous, and he was an eye, nose, and throat surgeon. So when it came time for surgeries, he could operate equally as well with his right hand as well as the left hand, mm-hmm. which which made him uh, very good. Uh, Dr. Walker, they had skilled hands, 
And there would be procedures that would take place in the other facilities that required skilled hands. And there had been some doctors that had recognized that there were some black physicians that were more skillful than they were. And they would come into the Vanderbilts, the St. Thomas's, uh, the Baptist hospitals, and they would perform surgery. But they couldn't come in be- under staff because they were not staff. Mm. They would come in, as I used to think at one time, it was guest. But I, from what I understand, they were really coming in as ghost physicians. Ghost, ghost physicians. And they would go in and perform the surgeries and correct everything and... Um, there was a note when we were cleaning out my father's office that showed where someone was thanking him for this uh, car, uh, this uh, uh, surgery that he had performed. Mm-hmm. You know, we got we have a minute left, Doctor Coney. When you hear about this, like your grandfather was so good that he was this ghost surgeon. Tell us about him. Tell us about what you want us to remember about your grandfather today. I would sum it up, and I think I think Bill, Mary Ellen, Katina, and Dr. Mays also have have stated things beautifully. But but uh, Grandpa really was a community servant, and he you know desperately wanted his community to thrive. And the key part of the key to thriving is having good health. It, it, you know the simple statement: your health is your wealth. And you know you can't do much if if you don't have basic health health care. So he made it a point, along along with other physicians and and professionals in the area, to to really try to um, get the community well and whole. That is Dr. Candace Coney, granddaughter of Dr. Matthew Walker. She's joined by friends of the Walker family, Mary Ellen Forrester Hollins and Bill Forrester. I want to thank you all for being here. Thank you for sharing and telling us more about Dr. Walker's legacy. Thank you. Thank you. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Next week, we're bringing you a rebroadcast from our episode from last year about Tennessee's 51-year sentence for juvenile murder convictions. The law was recently ruled unconstitutional. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Maddie Fox and Kathy Hunt. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and let us know what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Lake Colonna. We'll see you next week, everybody, and be good to each other.